good morning, everyone. Uh, we welcome all of you to our inaugural Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Symposium. We are so thrilled here at Connecticut Children's to be able to present this today. My name is Dr. Ken Spiegelman. I'm the, director, the medical director of postgraduate medical education at CCMC, and I am a practicing pediatrician in Manchester, Connecticut. It is such a privilege to take part in this inaugural DEI symposium. As a primary care pediatrician working in a relatively small office, colleagues and staff of mine are impacted by many of the issues that we are talking about today on a daily basis, most of which have been intensified and illuminated by the events of the past year. I believe that we all have an obligation to better understand issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our home lives, our workplace, and therefore be able to better deliver the best possible care to all of our children and families. Our first speaker today is Dr. Priyana Polwani from our endocrinology department. She is a medical director of our gender program, a co-director of the Clinic for Variations in Sexual Development, and we are so happy to have you here. Dr. Polwani will be speaking about gender dysphoria understanding gender diversity. Thank you so much for coming here today. All right, it is my pleasure to be here speaking on a subject that I'm rather passionate about. And again, I'm Priya Fulwani, and I just wanna dive in and get started since we're a few minutes late. So I'll be speaking about gender dysphoria and understanding gender diversity. I am a pediatric and an adult endocrinologist. And in both my worlds, I see a lot of patients that struggle with dysphoria around gender. So I'd like to share some key concepts with you all today. I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Um, the hormones and medications that I will be talking about are used for many conditions, but they are not FDA approved for gender dysphoria itself. So my objectives today are to one, define gender dysphoria, review how to provide that respectful care to gender diverse youth, and how we're going to apply current practice guidelines for hormone management. I have a few references there. Um, the one that we commonly use as endocrinologists is a free Google reference for the Endocrine Society practice guidelines. The last update to these were from 2017, but still decent. Um, there's another general guideline in pediatrics, um, and then there's one for primary care physicians overall. So those references are there. Let's start with some questions. Let's see what we already know. And I bet you all know everything already. So which of the following is not a diagnostic criterion for gender dysphoria? So not. A, a strong desire to be of the other gender. B, a strong dislike for one's sexual anatomy. C, clinically significant distress due to the dysphoria. And D, sexual attraction to members of the same gender. So I'll give you a second to think about it. And again, you're looking for which is not the diagnostic criteria. Um, and so here we go. The answer is of course, sexual attraction to members of the same gender, right? Because that's orientation rather than identity. Second question, which of the following is least appropriate? So I'm not able to call you by that name. What name would you like us to use? What is the name on your insurance card? And I apologize for using the wrong pronoun. So again, which is the least appropriate thing to say to a person? And the answer is, I am not able to call you by that name. 
So this is a true experience that's happened uh, to a number of my family, sadly. And so the thought is, if you're at registration or you're greeting the patient and you're struggling because it's a different name on the insurance card, certainly you can still go ahead and call the patient by the preferred name. You can explain why things don't match in their chart, for example, uh, but there's no reason not to respect their chosen name. Which of the following is true? So the incidence of homelessness and suicide are the same for transgender people as the general population. Okay, so which is true? Insurances do not cover any hormones for gender dysphoria. Estrogen and testosterone do not have any side effects. Or D, adolescents who have started puberty and have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria may benefit from puberty suppression. So I was taught as a student that if you're in doubt, the longest one's probably the right answer. And so sure enough, I did that here. Adolescents who have started puberty and have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, as you may expect, may certainly benefit from puberty suppression. And I'll discuss that, of course, further. So I'd like to start by defining what is gender dysphoria. To understand what it is, we also have to go into what it is not. Um, so let's go ahead and do that. So the persistent, insistent, and consistent realization that the gender you identify with is not that that was assigned at birth to you. That's by definition gender dysphoria. This is probably the most common question that I get asked from a family member. How do I know that my teenager is not going through a phase with this? And again, it's that persistent, insistent, consistent uh, realization. It may take time to get to that point, uh, but that's when you say, yep, this is definitely gender dysphoria. It is not necessarily opposite or transgender. It can be non-binary. Some other terms for non-binary, meaning I'm not fitting into the two binary categories you have in front of me. I can't put a check on that male box or that female box. Some other terms may be gender queer or gender fluid. The term agender is used when you want to say, I don't belong to either of these boxes, thank you. And sometimes people use pangender to say, well, there's more than these two boxes that I feel I belong to. So there are some other terms you might come across uh, when speaking to people who are struggling with dysphoria around their birth gender. Now, this perception may or may not necessarily correlate with the desire for surgery or hormones. I've had patients actually get asked by, by people who are just curious, well, you say you have gender dysphoria, or you say you're transgender, how come you're not on hormones or how come you're not choosing surgery? So it's important to keep that in mind that it's still a real diagnosis and not everybody wants or maybe can or maybe can afford to or medically safely um, can transition to all the steps, but it's still very much still gender dysphoria. So what is it not then? So gender identity is not the same then as sexual orientation, right? Orientation is the sex to whom one is sexually attracted. We're familiar with the terms heterosexual, homosexual, perhaps bisexual, but there are also terms such as asexual, again, the A, neither, not attracted to any gender, or pansexual, which to most people means that they're attracted to all genders, inclusive of transgender identities. So that's orientation, to whom you're attracted. Expression is the presentation. So your physical appearance, your mannerisms, clothing, and so on. And being intersex, so when we look at that LGBTQIA, we're kind of in these terms defining those. And the I is intersex, which are variations in sex characteristics. So this could be genital variations, chromosomal variations, and at times hormonal variations that do not fit the typically binary 
categories of male or female. So for example, if you're XX and you have a virilizing condition, high androgen milieu, you may have congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, if you have an under-viralizing condition and you're XY, such as androgen insensitivity, that would be another variation. And then certainly chromosomal variations, the most common of which we think about are Turner's and Kleinfelter's. So how then do we define gender dysphoria in our medical guidebooks in our literature? So right now, this definition lies in the DSM. So it requires at least six months of the following. I'll say in practice, by the time a teen or even a preteen comes to medical care, it's most of the time been way over the six months. But technically, it's a minimum of six months of, of course, number one, meeting the definition. So the incongruence between the gender at birth and how you identify yourself. And then the, another required criterion is that this then has led to some distress. Now, the newer iterations in ICD-911 and the upcoming DSM are proposing to replace distress with discomfort because we do have some very um, supportive families where it may not be that the patient is suicidal from these thoughts, but very uh, discomforted and it's causing some sort of effect in their school or work or important area of their life. And as you would imagine, an intense need to do away with those parts you were born with, a desire to have the parts you were not born with, and a need for society to accept you as such. So in children, it's similar to this definition, but also five of the following criteria. Now, as I read these, you may think to yourself, that sounds pretty weak, and you're right. So strong preference for gender roles, toys, games, activities, playmates, all of these, you might imagine a lot of kids go through phases really in their life where that may be the case. The strongest though, and we find that studies that use these two for their definition are the ones that show the greatest persistence rate in children with gender dysphoria is a verbalized dislike for one's anatomy um, and a strong desire for characteristics, specifically physical characteristics of another gender. And what happens in the future for those kids who had some of those um, criteria, especially the weaker ones that I had mentioned? So in studies, it really depends on how they define gender dysphoria when they followed them up. But the outcomes have been about one third, only one third of those who had prepubertal gender dysphoria continue to feel this way. Um, and then two third will change their mind of that two-third, the large majority identifies with sexuality that's different from the binary norm. Very important to still specify that these are distinct phenomena. So I've been asked, for example, by a parent, well, my five-year-old born boy says that she's, he's a girl and he wants to wear dresses. Where are we headed with this? Does this mean that my child is going to be transgender? Does it mean my child is going to be gay and just likes to wear feminine things? The truth is we don't know be supportive, follow them. Chances are, and totally just chances, two-third, one-third, that this may be something that's transient. Chances are, if it is, again, two-third, one-third, that yes, there may be sexual preference that is not the binary norm. But again, two-third, one-third is not like saying 99%, 1%. So typically, I don't go into those statistics and I say, just support your child, time will tell. This is a cute cartoon, I find, especially to share with kids who are struggling as to how to explain that to their parents or peers or parents who are trying to say, well, cousin so-and-so doesn't understand how this is different from being gay. How do I explain that? So the genderbred person shows you with a little cartoon, the differences then with identity, 
how you're feeling about yourself, your mind, attraction, whom you're attracted to, expression, how you carry yourself outwardly, and then biological sex, the parts that you were born with. A key concept that oftentimes is a struggle based on what we've learned in biology is the acceptance that all of these features, including biology, are actually on a spectrum. I often have that discussion when I wear my clinical hat um, in the Clinic for Variations and Sex Development, and I've been called on a baby whose genitals don't fit the norm. I explained to families, biology is actually more complex than what we were taught in high school with XX and XY, that there are truly more variations than that. And then we go into the different features of the genderbred person. This is free on Google as well, um, and the link will be in the chat. So I'd like to now review, how do we provide respectful care then to gender diverse youth? So first of all, why should we? Does it matter? Um, there's all kinds of arguments that, oh, it's one in a million. Why are we changing the rules or making special accommodations for this population? It's actually far higher than that with the rates that are increasing. Ask any pediatrician, um, the one next to you, how often used to see this thing, this phenomenon, and how many cases do you get now? It's an incredibly, incredibly, excuse me, exponential rise. Why? Is it because it's actually increasing? I feel like it's more comfort level and coming out now that we have a more supportive society. So we're looking at 0.1 to 1.3% incidence. Yes, these patients have an increased risk for physical, sexual, emotional abuse, bullying, peer victimization. And uh, the key point here is a higher attempted suicide rate. So the number of these kids, unfortunately, I know the behavioral health units are, are flooded in general during this pandemic, but the number of kids uh, with this underlying diagnosis that frequent our um, behavioral health units is relatively high. The attempted suicide rate is 20% versus the general population rate of one to 2%. So it's um, a definite uh, significant diagnosis to make when you're screening a patient, say, who has depression. Um, family support, here's a bit of good news. Family support is a very protective factor. And study after study shows that family support is a factor against depression and suicidality and improves the quality of life. So how then, now that we know it's important to do, how then can we provide that respectful care? Pronouns. Pronouns are a very important sign of respect. Takes a minute to note it down and put it into your um, EMR if you can. It certainly may not match what's on their ID or insurance card. It can be he or she, but also gender neutral options, most common of which is they, them. So for example, Pat received a flu shot in their right arm today because they were overdue. If the patient says, I'm not sure, I haven't thought about it, it's very stressful, even the question answering it, or they say, I don't use pronouns. What do you do then? You just use their name or just use the word patient. Pat received a flu shot in Pat's right arm today because Pat was overdue. Or just say the patient instead of the name, that's absolutely fine. Few examples of what might be best practices along the lines of, of providing this respectful care. So in general, we need to move away from gender terms instead of sir or ma'am, how may I help you today? When talking about patients, avoid pronouns and other gender terms. Your patient is here in the waiting room. Politely ask, just ask if you're unsure about a patient's preferred name. What name would you like us to use? Ask respectfully about names if they don't match what's in your records. It often happens, right? So just ask, could your chart possibly be under another name? That can be very useful and phrasing it that way can be very respectful rather than saying, I can't find you in our system. Um, and then we all make mistakes. And I remind my students and residents that rotate with me in gender clinic um, that don't belabor that point. You tripped, you made a mistake, apologize and move on. Otherwise you put the patient in the position to comfort you 
Um, so just, I'm so sorry, move on. Do not make the mistake again. That's very useful. How about providing respectful care using our current electronic medical records? So most current systems have a place for you to flag their name and therefore make it show up in the header itself. So registration staff need to be aware, of course, of gender dysphoria in general, but also how they can best use EMR. So it starts right there when the patient walks to the front desk. Ask about preferred name, edit it so it comes into your top banner. And then there's a clinical form, for example, EPIC, if you use EPIC, has a sex and gender smart form area where you can add additional information. Um, you can add pronouns used, biological parts if you need to have that. Advisories can be helpful. So if you have a patient who has a diagnosis of gender dysphoria and you have some sort of pop-up which reminds you, that can be useful. For example, hemoglobin in someone who's on testosterone, even if they were born female, is going to be higher. And so you have the pop-up, you're not gonna worry every time you get the lab result back that has a high hemoglobin. And this is very impactful on progress notes, AVSs, letters that the patient receives, that the providers that take care of them receive. It's going to have the name on the insurance card, but it's also going to have a place for that preferred name. How do you ask that question? So when I give lunch and learns to um, pediatrician offices, I'll often get asked, how do I screen for this? Because you don't want to single out people who you suspect based on clothing, right? Remember gender expression is different from identity um, or where they bring it up necessarily. It needs to be part of our adolescent questionnaire. So I suggest if you're using a paper questionnaire, have it there and if in your verbal questions have it. So for example, during that confidential time, I hope that you have with each teenager, you're asking, do you vape or smoke nicotine? How about marijuana? Are you sexually active? Do you know what that means? Are you using protection consistently? Right there. Are you happy with your gender being whatever you have listed in the insurance card? Um, I had one practice that asked me, what if the patient doesn't understand that question? Let me reassure you, the teens know this question. They know what it means to have gender identity. Um, they're familiar with the term. It's more often the parent that says, what, what do you mean by that? So ask them, ask your teenager, are you happy being? And then complete that sentence with the gender on their insurance card. Possible answer, they, oh yeah, I'm happy with that. Or no, actually I'm transgender or I'm non-binary. And they may say this with full confidence. Often a teen who's still exploring this may say, well, sometimes I think I may be um, and then explore that with them a little bit. What does that mean to you? Is that making you sad? How are you dealing with it? How's school going? I think then that um, if you have time in that visit or you may need to have a separate visit to explore it further. And then does your parent or legal guardian know? I'd like to stress that you wanna make sure that where they are with their family is in a safe space to disclose. You don't wanna tell them, well, you've gotta tell your parent, I, I can't do anything further for you until you do so. The incidence, the rate of homelessness is sadly much higher in gender dysphoric youth. We have some teenagers who were kicked out um, because they disclose this to their family. So just get a sense of, do you, do you feel like you'd be safe sharing that with any family member? Sometimes an older sibling is where they start, for example. Um, so I think that's important. And then what do you do? And I get asked this question too. What do, you, what do you do if the adolescent shares this with you, but the parent doesn't know? Or one parent's supportive, but the other legal guardian, parent, grandma, whoever is not supportive. I think you can approach this sort of with the teenager as, is this making you anxious? Would it help to speak to someone about the anxiety? Because 85% or more of them have anxiety related to gender dysphoria and sort of suggest the mental health support system to start with providing support around anxiety. 
one parent supportive, you can dive it into further and say, you know, I think the anxiety source is these struggles around gender. So see if you can help them through that perspective. But again, that safety piece is important if the teen's disclosing and the parents are completely unaware. Um, I feel that our website does a pretty good job, if I may say, about providing you with some resources, both from the family perspective and the provider perspective. So this is ConnecticutChildrens.org forward slash gender. Um, it will be in the chat. And the information that it has is for a pre-pubertal gender diverse child, like I mentioned before, just support the expression, ensure a safe environment. Therapists can be useful to provide support. There is no role for medications or hormones at this stage. When puberty begins, the primary care provider uh, wonderfully often will send a referral. If the referral could please include the name and pronouns if you have that information um, and the puberty exam as well as if they're already known to a therapist, for example, that therapist letter can be useful. Sometimes families say, what do you want that therapist exactly to write? There's a link on that website for what that letter should include. Now, without the therapist letter, it's very important to inform the family. I'm still happy to see them, but it'll just be an information visit. I've had some heartbreaks since I've changed this policy about needing the letter, where the teenager comes in thinking they're going to leave with a prescription or an adult comes in absolutely not ready for the information I'm about to discuss. They had no idea this is what we're gonna talk about. So prepping them with, please visit the website before you go to that clinic. Please understand that it's an information visit unless you guys desire to proceed with hormones and you have that therapist letter, super important and helpful. It is important for adolescents to have behavioral health support. So sometimes I get the opposite criticism that you're requiring too much for them to start a prescription. And I find that especially with adolescents, that support as they gender transition, the world's a difficult place enough without struggling with gender dysphoria for teen nowadays. So whether they're starting reversible medical interventions that pause puberty, we'll go into this further, these are GNRH agonists, or whether they're desiring more permanent changes and they're at the point that they're going on testosterone estrogen, certainly at that point, they need that extra support. So please do refer to behavioral health support. Mental health professionals can help, and this is a statement straight from the WPATH guidelines on the importance of mental health, can help those considering hormone therapy to be both psychologically prepared, like how to make a fully informed decision, um, also practically prepared. How are you gonna deal with it at school? How are you gonna share it with your friends and your teachers? So I think that's important. And they are also very helpful to preempt the visit with me in terms of discussing you know, the hormone doctor is going to talk about how this affects your reproductive potential. How do you foresee your future life as a parent? Does that matter to you? So very helpful, I feel, to have that mental health support before they come through my door, but certainly before they go on prescriptions. Please inform the patient that the visit may include a chest and external genital exam. This is an insurance requirement, as well as if they're going on a puberty blocker, you need to know where they are in their pubertal stage also include any clarification regarding custody issues. So that's another issue of heartbreak. They come to the visit, they're prepared, mom comes with the kid, you have the discussion, and then we ask, is the second legal guardian supportive? Well, actually, uh, we're not together, the father is not aware and supportive, and then that delays it for the teen, and it causes a lot of heartbreak. So very useful if you could give them the heads up that the other uh, legal guardian, if they have joint medical decision-making custody, will need to um, provide consent. When I get referrals from therapists, oftentimes um, I'll be missing the demographics page. 
So the letter is great, but to, for me to match that into the right chart, I need the name as it appears on the insurance card in addition, um, and also the demographics. And if they've never referred before to my practice, there's a doubly path checklist, which states I've had experience with teenagers, I've had experience with gender dysphoric youth. I need that to be checked off and included with their letter. The website has additional sources too, not just related to the clinic and, and the clinic steps, but also if parents are looking for school transition safety, uh, uh, GLSEN, Gleason, very, very nice website uh, for supportive organizations. Support groups are listed on this website. And then glad.org has in general, lots of different transgender resources, including the Trevor Project, um, if mental health is an issue. So, it also on this website has links for patients to find primary care providers or mental health providers. It also has a link for our medical professionals if they'd like to be listed on this website as someone who provides care for gender diverse patients. I would love to expand on the list that we have. Please sign up. There's a link there for um, medical professionals, pediatricians, primary care doctors, OBGYNs, et cetera, as well as a link for mental health professionals. If practices are interested in further information and they'd like a lunch and learn, we can certainly do that at this time via Zoom. We ask that at least three or four providers uh, be present for it. Another way to provide supportive care is the Health Equality Index. So that's a national LGBTQ benchmarking tool um, that evaluates healthcare facilities actually, and make sure that these facilities have a very clear policy um, on their website and in practice that protects patients, visitors, and staffs, and a very inclusive cultural competency training, uh, which has training on lots of stuff that we talked about today. Also specific patient care services like gender clinics and general facility support like gender neutral restrooms. Do you have an electronic medical record where you can flag a preferred name and pronoun? Um, also the workplace itself. So not just outwardly, but within that institution, are we supporting employee policies and benefits um, and that there's an element of public commitment to the community as well. So we've defined gender dysphoria. We know what it is, what it is not. We've reviewed how we can use EMR as well as other best practices to provide respectful care. And we'll now move on to how do we apply current practice guidelines for hormone management. So you get a sense of what happens when they come to an endocrinologist. So puberty blockers or GnRH agonists, examples are luprolide injections or histrelin implants can be prescribed at 10 or two, meaning the start of puberty and up, not before. Super supportive families will sometimes say, can we prevent the undesired uh, puberty from happening? We don't do medications with side effects without even the start of puberty. So it has to be 10 or two or up. It is considered a reversible option. If you were to stop it, your endogenous puberty begins. Um, and we're familiar with this class of medications from the use in precocious puberty. Cross hormones, what is often referred to as cross hormones in the lay community, what they mean is estrogen or testosterone, hormones that are helping you transition to another gender. The old guidelines was 16 and an up, line across the sand, not under 16. Newer guidelines say 13 and a half to 16 on a case-by-case -case basis. Imagine if you were a 10-year-old uh, female biology kid who had puberty and you were put on a blocker at, um, let's say at eight with breast buds, right? Because it's earlier now than it used to be. With the old guidelines, you'd have to be on a puberty blocker between eight to 16. All hormones suppressed, 
no puberty like your peers, and bone health will be impacted. So for multiple medical reasons, as well as for mental health reasons, that cutoff has dropped. So for a case-by-case -case basis, you might even start as early as 13 and a half to 14. Surgery, um, the top surgery, what is referred to as top surgery, and what they mean by that is chest surgery, you need to be one year on testosterone to have surgery for a male chest. Uh, typically, these are older kids, um, 15 and up, and then anything with the genitals is 18 and up by law, it's age of consent. Uh, there are a few surgeons who would consider it slightly earlier, uh, but it's definitely not covered by most insurances until 18 and up for anything that involves genitalia or uterus reproductive organs. One of the big questions that comes up with hormone management is what are the ethics around putting someone very young on a blocker and then going straight to a cross hormone? So we never let those gametes mature. So I have to have a conversation with an eight-year-old and their parent that I'm going to pause your puberty and should your gender dysphoria persist, you'll go straight from the blocker to say the cross hormone. So this may have permanent impacts on your fertility potential. And that's definitely an important discussion to have. Puberty pause medicines, those reversible blockers. Gender dysphoria worsens with the onset of puberty. It's one of the hallmark features actually for most, not all, but for most patients. So having that discussion, that's why 10 or 2 and up, you get a sense of whether it's going to persist or desist, informed assent and consent. And we do require for um, insurance, a physical exam and lab values. This is expensive stuff. So if insurance doesn't cover it, Lupron can run, Luprolide can run 2,500 for a three month depot. And the yearly implant, Histrelin, can run in the several thousands. It's probably more like 5,000 to 8,000 at this point. So very expensive. The risks when you're using injections, like any injections, some site soreness, allergic reaction, the risks with both implants and injections, sometimes hot flashes, you can have a temporary rise in hormones before suppression. The long-term risk, if you did not follow this with cross hormones, is bone health. The benefits, of course, are the great benefit to mental health when the undesired puberty is paused. And stopping, the biggest question I get asked in the older teens is, can you make my period stop with this? I don't like to see this. This is not what my body was meant to do or the morning erections. And certainly these medicines can stop that. Once stopped, if you weren't uh, following that with a cross hormone, these hormone levels recover typically by three months, sperm typically six to 12 months. We don't have a defined period for ovulation recovery, uh, but typically in my experience, usually within six months to a year again, um, and then most centers will recommend discussing fertility preservation at all points, but certainly before cross hormones. This is a picture of what that histrelin implant looks like. Um, the device for insertion looks a little scarier than the actual implant that goes in. It's very small. Um, and it's a little picture there to show you how it compares to the size of a, of a dime there. Or, um, so it's really, really small. It's really not bad. And the benefits, as I said, you're stopping an undesired puberty, you're preventing further breast development, you're improving with short stature if you were born female. If you were born male and you wish not to have a low voice, an Adam's apple, if you do this early enough, uh, you can pause these undesired changes. Male bone configuration like the jaw, the hands, um, and with a little help with pausing it early and starting the estrogen physiologically, you can actually reduce that final tall stature prevent that male hair pattern. So hormones that feminize, in other words, estrogen, comes in many forms, oral, patches, injectables, um, and there's different protocols on how to use these. 
overall, the biggest risk with that is if you use it alone, you won't have a good suppression of testosterone. So unlike someone who's born female and identifies with male and I put them on testosterone, it's pretty potent. I don't need an anti-estrogen. But in this direction, when I'm feminizing, they need to go on estrogen, but also something that'll bring down or block the androgen effect. So spironolactone tablets are cheap. They're readily available. They can cause hyperkalemia. They can cause uh, polyuria. Uh, usually though, if they're well hydrated and know about these side effects, it's well tolerated. We're aiming to get the testosterone pretty low, under 55, and the estrogen to over 100. And what can we expect once we've started this protocol? The biggest question that I get asked is, when will these bothersome erections stop? It can be one to three months to see those effects and about three to six months for full effect. The other big question that I get asked is when will breast development start or peak? And three to six months, usually they'll already see that breast tenderness, which I warned them about and breast buds. And I discussed that that's normal peak breast growth can take two to three years if you're really trying to mimic physiology, which you should try to do. So it's an exercise in patience. And I find that explaining that to teenagers and having that readiness that this is a journey and it's going to take time can go a long way to avoid disappointment. Voice does not change with estrogen. That's the other big question I get asked. You do need vocal therapy um, to retrain your voice if you've already gone through deepening through the undesired puberty. The biggest concern we have as providers, especially those of us who are familiar with estrogen hormone replacement therapy in older women, is blood clots, blood clots, um, heart attacks, strokes. So there's a very nice review um, done in 2019, which looked at these two really big studies looking specifically at blood clot and stroke. The thing is, most of these patients weren't oral estrogen. So these aren't studies that looked at alternate forms, but very concerning stroke risk was as high as fourfold higher than women on estrogen for other reasons. And oral estrogen seems to be um, the issue. So there are some smaller studies looking at transdermal estrogen, which showed much lower risk of these. And overall, we think just like with hormone replacement therapy studies in older women, when you take oral estrogen, the first past effect going through the liver, those clotting factors going up, you're bypassing it by using patches or injections. And that may well explain why the risk is much lower. So those have been my preferences rather than high doses of oral estrogen for transition. What about masculinizing hormones? So testosterone comes in many forms. There are gels, there are patches, there are pellets. There's a new intranasal form. There is an oral form now that's made a comeback after we were burnt with the liver issues years ago. There's a new safer oral form. Generally speaking, the data in transgender individuals is primarily with injectable and gel. Uh, and that has been my preference. The goal here is to get your testosterone level over 300. Typically, they feel better if they're over 350. You can go all the way up to about 750, 800. If you look at the Quest reference range, it can go up to 1000. So if you're trying to stop someone's period, but not necessarily desiring all full masculization, usually if you get to 300, you would achieve that goal. So it really depends on the patient's goals, on the side effects they're experiencing, and what can we expect from testosterone? Biggest question I get asked here is when will those bothersome periods stop? It's a monthly reminder. It causes me great dysphoria. Two to six months, typically three months for most patients. And 
Um, and then that's it, it's stopped and they're happy. Usually if they're compliant, good technique, the testosterone is going in for the vast majority, periods don't make a comeback. Deepening of voice can take a much, much, much longer, two years even. So I hope that we've talked about and we have understood what is gender dysphoria or gender incongruence. I will say the new ICD code is going to call it gender incongruence. There's a proposal to move from dysphoria to incongruence. So you'll see that upcoming. And that affirmed gender is other than the gender assigned at birth. What it is not, it's not sexual orientation or expression or being intersex. I hope we now understand why and how to provide that respectful care to patients, capturing that name and pronoun using that EMR, and a somewhat overview of hormone management, the tremendous benefits to mental health that decrease in suicide attempt rate from 20% down to less than two in study after study. The impacts though, very important, there are impacts on fertility and bone health. I am a great believer in having a spiel on calcium and vitamin D with each patient, no matter what their diagnosis, but maybe specifically more so for this population. And then the risks are actually very well tolerated, very few risks. Oral estrogen high doses remains a concern for clots and stroke. So I wanted to leave plenty of questions here. Um, and so we have lots of time um, and I will end at this point and, and take your questions. Okay, Dr. Marani, thank you so much for such an engaging and fabulous lecture. You know, this is an area that many people like myself had no training in 20 and 30 years ago, and we're learning as we go, as we see many more of these patients in our practice. So we really appreciate this fabulous lecture today. Uh, so I'd like to just ask you some of the questions that we've gotten from our audience. Uh, not sure if this will come up later, but if there's a reference that could be provided about safety of binders, if there's some that are better than others, and how long they should be removed per day if there is a recommendation. Yes, it's an excellent question. There's lots of um, resources. Um, lots of my patients buy them, say, on Amazon. The most important thing, um, I can send a reference later, but the most important thing um, is that it fit well more than the company that makes it, um, that it fits well. And most of these binders, because they are structured to really compress, um, I don't recommend wearing it over 10 hours, eight hours if they can. But a lot of our older teenagers are going from school to work, they have long days. And again, they're weighing that against their mental health. Um, so I suggest if they can get away with eight hours, that would be great. Um, if they're working after school, they're outside, they, they can't live without their binder 10 max 12 hours and really do not fall asleep with their binder that's a big one um, during the summer months when they're sweaty they're prone to rashes they're not very breathable most of them so using a cornstarch based or other powder or even deodorant uh, around certain areas a gentle non-aluminum based um, kind of keeping the skin dry and making sure it fits well and yes the duration of wear matters so i would say Eight hours would be ideal, no more than 10 and 12, weighing that against their mental health, of course. Um, 
it's sad, but many of our patients do not like to see these body parts. They'd rather sleep in their binder 27. They'd rather not look at their bodies when they're in the shower. It can be very dramatic, the dysphoria um, around this. I had a patient wearing it so tight they had rib contusions. So making sure that the binder fits well, that they feel safe with that, um, I think is important. It's a very, very good question, and it's an important one to ask your patients. Okay, thanks. Uh, a comment we've heard from many people. This is just a superb and excellent talk. Thank you. Um, what is the recommendation when an infant is born with ambiguous genitalia? Are surgeries still happening? Totally different topic. So again, gender dysphoria, different from orientation, different from presentation, different from intersex. So our surgery is still happening depends on what the ideology and medical urgency is of the condition. Now, I'm going to make this assumption that by this question, it is meant that if you have a clitorophallic structure, so either a smaller size penis, once you have the karyotype and gender identity is assigned, or you want to call it an enlarged clitoris, are surgeries happening to those parts? Um, for the vast majority of patients, the answer is no, unless medically necessary. Now, if you needed a surgery for CAH, um, you needed surgery that requires making an opening for you to urinate, making an opening for you to have stool. Those types of medical surgeries aside, for the vast majority of patients when they're born, and the most common actually is XX with clitoral enlargement, uh, we are not saying, oh my goodness, that does not look right. We need to operate. We need to make it smaller. Because let's talk, about, there's many, many reasons, right? An enlarged clitoris, what is a normal clitoris? Um, there is variety, there is diversity. So I think explaining that to families that are probably scared and not understanding and just want their kid to look normal and have a normal life, and that's where they're coming from. But I think gentle education, continued relationships in a multidisciplinary clinic, such as the one that we have at Connecticut Children's, is very important because we do have families that come in with the fix it. Like, I'm bringing my baby to you because this doesn't look normal. I have not seen this, and I want my baby to have a normal life. We, don't, we do not encourage immediate surgical construction of those parts. We want to provide that education and that space. Um, the vast majority of patients, parents, when given that time and education, choose to accept their children and let them get older so they can participate in that decision-making rather than make urgent decisions. So um, know the vast majority of patients born with, and um, I prefer to call it variations in sex development rather than ambiguous genitalia, uh, but the vast majority do not opt for urgent surgeries. Separate issue though from gender identity. Thank you. Being an ally, how would you approach conversations with family members who are not allies or simply do not agree with the lifestyle of our LGDQ positive friends and family? I am trying to be a positive influence on my niece who lives in a very different household than the one that we grew up in? That is a very, very difficult question and probably the hardest one that I face, frankly. So sometimes I'll have a, I had two patients who I was seeing for something completely different, um, hypothyroid kid and a type one, and a kid who had type one diabetes. Um, and it came up during my confidential time, you know, are you using protection or how much do you, I asked them how much rather than if they do or not, how much do you vape? How much marijuana are you using? Are you happy with your gender identity? Tears. I'm not, but I can't tell my parents. Um, we belong in a, in a very conservative household. I brought it up once. I was shut down. Um, they said they would disown me. So how do you, as a family member who is aware of this, support them? I think the biggest thing you can do is provide that safe space. So for your um, family member, if they can be safe in your home, 
expressing themselves, having you to share that with, that goes a long way. Are they safe in school? Do they have friends outside that unit um, that help them? Can you direct them to a support group, even if it's online? But again, confirming that safety, that if they were to be caught doing that, that they wouldn't be kicked out of their home, um, they would have a place to stay. I think that sort of support is, I would say, fundamental. And then beyond that, if you can gently, I know those Thanksgiving dinner conversations are never easy when people have different politics and beliefs, but if you can gently maybe provide resources to those caregivers, those legal guardians, those parents um, on the subject, that would be very useful. But beyond that, it's a, it's a very, very difficult issue. And sometimes despite all of that, you get a hard, we're not talking about this. This is not happening to my child, door closed in your face. And I'm sorry about that. Uh, but I applaud the attempt um, that you're making as an ally to support your family member. Thank you. You may have mentioned this already. My apologies if I missed it. Prior to the beginning of any puberty blockers or hormone therapy, do children and their parents participate in any form of counseling or therapy? I ask this question to make a comparison to those individuals who choose to have weight loss sur surgery. Many surgeons require them to attend weight loss classes and other counseling sessions to qualify for the surgery. And I may just add, as seeing many of these patients myself in my office suffering from gender dysphoria, do you have specific therapists in mind to see these patients? Because right now during the pandemic, uh, with heightened behavioral issues, it's hard enough to find any counselor. So thank you. Yes, it is very hard. Um, there are only so many counselors that we have in the state, but we're very, very lucky in Connecticut, actually. We have a wonderful list of therapists who are familiar with gender dysphoria. So the first question, yes, I do require, there are programs that do not require, I do require that they're getting counseling and that letter of support from the therapist, which says they've had those discussions, they've been seeing each other for a while, they agree with the DSM diagnostic criteria of gender dysphoria for this patient, the patient is able to make an informed consent decision, preferably the letter includes that they've touched upon reproductive uh, effects of hormone therapy and the family's aware that this may be the case. Yes, I need that letter. The website clearly um, states that also for the family. So if you were to tell the family, there's all this wonderful information on what to expect at the visit and what you need on the website, that'll be great. So I do need that letter um, of support. I do encourage counseling, even if the letter weren't an insurance requirement, I would require that counseling. I think it's important and ongoing. A little different for my older adult patients, uh, but for my teens, yes, I do really ask for that. Um, and the website has links. So where there's that link for where you find that mental health provider, where can you find a primary care provider supportive, that link takes them to a statewide list of therapists. These therapists are vetted by other patients. So these are my, my patients who've gone to these therapists, they found them supportive, or they're listed on True Colors or other resources, or other therapists have then referred them. Um, so uh, these are all therapists that you can sort of trust, and I would say go to that link if you're looking for that particular resource. Okay. Thank you. I'm wondering if CCMC is currently involved in gender reassignment sur surgery or if you partner with other organizations. And as you and I talked beforehand, I think there's about a four-month wait to get in to see someone at CCMC. And a patient of mine recently called Yale, and there was about a one-year wait. It's about six months right now uh, for the gender clinic at Connecticut Children's, which is why I sort of uh, changed my policy on saying come in with the letter even to be seen to go ahead come on in for an information visit while we're waiting for your therapist letter so that's eased up the wait um, a bit at CCMC it is a long wait at most gender clinics for gender dysphoria 
Um, and what I would say, and that's a and so a separate question was uh, gender reassignment surgery. So if you mean for gender dysphoric youth who are 18 and up, and they are, uh, I like to call it gender confirming surgeries, uh, or some people call it gender affirming surgeries uh, rather than reassignment. But in any case, I know what you mean. So if you're looking at phalloplasty, creation of the penis, metoidioplasty, enhancement of an existing clitoris, um, if you're talking about vaginoplasty, creation of the vagina, um, all of these different surgeries have different expertise, as you can imagine. So if it's orchiectomy and removal just of the testicles, we have plenty of surgeons that do that in Connecticut. For the other surgeries, vaginoplasty and phalloplasty, at this time, we're primarily referring to centers of expertise outside of Connecticut. Um, state insurance, for example, covers these surgeries for transgender adults after 18, if they are within those certain providers um, that are close to us in Connecticut. So the vast majority of these surgeries are currently out of state. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, listen, I just wanna thank you so much for a fabulous talk on an area that we all need to have continuous education on. I'm sure we'll be hearing from you more. Uh, oh, we I, uh, oh, we just did get one more. I learn something new every time I hear you speak about gender dysphoria. Well done. Thank you so much for your capable leadership and guidance in this area. I think that's a comment that reflects all of us. It is, it is my pleasure. Um, this is a population and a subject that I'm very passionate um, about. And I will say at CCMC, we're um, hoping to work towards the HEI uh, index so we can, uh, we can be further supportive to this population. And thank you for having me on this conference. Thank you so much. Again, we'll take a 15-minute break, and we'll be back at around 9.15, starting again. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone, to our inaugural Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Symposium. Uh, really um, honored to be here, uh, and I want to recognize the people who had the idea, specifically Nicole Capsolas, who uh, had this very important idea that we, we, we needed to have a symposium that would recognize this very important topic that is a, is a major emphasis now for Connecticut children's. Uh, this is a topic that, uh, obviously, with recent events over the past year and a half, two years, and probably from over two, three decades, uh, we need to address very directly. Uh, and, and we're doing everything we can, can here at Connecticut Children's to make sure that, uh, that we honor our values uh, and that we recognize uh, some of the issues that have to be dealt with, uh, that we have open discussion. And, and this is part of it. Uh, it's really educating our community. And so, uh, so, Nicole, thank you very much for moving this forward. And Liz also for uh, picking up on that and moving it in our entire uh, CME office for making sure that this happened. The, the first lecture by Dr. Puwani was just simply amazing. It's recorded for you, so you can listen to it uh, at any time. Uh, and uh, we'll be putting it up on our Facebook page. Um, and I think Dr. Puwani will also uh, uh, socialize it so that people can listen to her. And you, know, she, you can invite her at any time to give presentations. It's really good. The other great news is that we, we do have a, uh, an internal uh, fundraising event that is part of this uh, to uh, give a, a scholarship to a, a Hartford Public High graduate. That's very important as part of our community here at Connecticut Children's. And so far, we've collected 1,300. 
The goal is 1500, so hopefully by the end of Dr. Fink's presentation, we'll have reached the 1500. There's a link, just click there. Uh, so some of you just go ahead and donate $500. It'll be very nice. Uh, maybe we can do two scholarships if we get up there. So, uh, and, I, and I think Dr. Fink with her presentation will encourage everyone to, to do that. Uh, now, let, let's move into the presentation. Now, uh, all of you know uh, Chris Fink, and, and I certainly have had the pleasure of working with her for, for many years. Uh, and uh, I've always been impressed with her, her surgical skills, uh, her people skills, and her vision. And uh, she is our first woman surgeon-in-chief here at Connecticut Children's, and one of the few in the country. And, uh, and, and you know how hard that is. It's very difficult. Uh, so Chris is, is going to share with us uh, the issue of combating stereotypes as a mom, wife, and surgeon. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing this. Uh, I, again, I just want to emphasize how wonderful it is to be working with her. And, uh, you know, we, we're partners in crime here as uh, Surgeon-in-Chief, Physician-in-Chief, and I just could not be more pleased to be working with her for so many years. Uh, she always impresses me with everything she's doing, multitasking, taking care of young children, uh, uh, making sure her husband stays on track and, and all the things that he needs to do, uh, but also taking time off to, uh, to, you know, to be a mom and, and do it all at the same time, you know, research, education, clinical care, surgical skills, and administrative skills. So, so Chris, I'm, I am so thankful for your partnership. Uh, really an amazing, an amazing physician and, and leader in our community, and I look forward to listening to, you know, how you have addressed this issue, which I know has been very, very difficult at times for you and some of the, of the colleagues that you uh, have mentored over the years. So, Chris, I'm going to give this to you, and then we'll have questions at the end. Thank you very much, and good morning, everybody. Um, I want to thank you, Juan, too. It's been quite a journey for us, and I couldn't think of a better partner to have along the journey. Um, and to Nicole and Anna Marie, um, and the planning committee for this. I hope this becomes an annual event. I think talking about this stuff is how we um, address issues, make change, and grow as an organization. So I'm really um, thankful that I actually get to be uh, part of the kickoff of this uh, symposium. Uh, today I'd like to talk about combating stereotypes as a mom, wife, and surgeon. If we could pull up my slides, that would be great. Are they here? Um, I don't have any disclosures to make. I had put together a couple of objectives, which I'm not going to read to you today, but there's a lot that I would like to touch upon today. The one thing that I'm going to say right now in the beginning is that this is not an either or. Um, and I'll get back to that at the end, but if everybody can keep that in mind as we're going through the presentation, um, it'll make sense at the end. So I wanted to start with just some opportunities and data because, you know, it's been um, almost a two-year process now where I started um, thinking about the women in surgery and getting a group together to talk about some of the issues we face. And I always think it's important for us to look at um, what the data shows and what is really going on. So if you look at these two uh, individuals and if they walk into your hospital room and you're a patient, who would you think would be the doctor? And I just want to pause and think about that, because this is something that happens to us every day. And universally, people will pick the person or address their questions to the person on the left of the screen um, as their physician. And so how does it feel to be judged? And these are subconscious judgments. Judgment means that it's a process of forming an opinion or evaluation by discerning or comparing. And what does gender bias really mean? It's the tendency to prefer one gender over another, it's unconscious or implicit bias. It occurs when one individual unconsciously attributes certain attitudes and stereotypes to another person or group of people. These ascribed behaviors affect how the individual understands and engages with each other. 
One story I have that resonates, and when I was going through all of this and thinking back on past experiences, um, I happened to be a, a fourth-year resident in um, Syracuse at the time. And at that time, it was the job of the chief resident to teach the, the junior residents how to put in central lines. Um, as archaic as it sounds, we used to do them in the rooms on the floor. And um, we had this process where that was passed down to me that I was passing down to my junior, where you would tape the lidocaine or the local anesthetic up on the wall. You would get the whole tray set up. And the purpose was is to set, to show the intern how to set everything up, then step out of the room and let them try, and then come back in and help them. And so I went in. We got consent from this 75-year-old um, lady who needed a central line for, for nutrition. Um, helped, helped my intern, who happened to be a male resident, set up everything, stepped out of the room, waited about 30 minutes, went back to go see, and he was walking out of the room, and he was chuckling to himself. And I said, what's so funny? I said, did you get the line? And he's like, yeah, I got the line. Thanks for your help. I said, but why are you laughing? And he goes, well, this, this nice little woman said to me, you really th ought to thank that lady. She really knew what she was doing. In no place or time did that woman think that I was a physician, let alone the fact that I was actually supervising him. She thought I was a mere worker that was just helping him get set up. And so that was the first time. Now, we all laughed it off and, you know, it became a joke between the intern and myself for the rest of the residency. But when you reflect back, was that implicit bias? Um, just getting into some of the statistics. Women now comprise more than half of medical school enrollees and are 35.2% um, of all active physicians. In 2017, the AAMC put some data together on physicians by sex um, and uh, looking at the surgical divisions, and that's what I pulled out. And so you can see there are certain specialties that have very, very few women in them. For example, neurosurgery, only 8.4% of neurosurgeons are women. Orthopedic surgery, still 5.3%, and I think our, our division is, is very lucky to have as many women as they have. Thoracic surgery, 7%. Urology, 8.7%. And so you can see females tend to not go into the surgical specialties. Um, but why? So back 5,000 years ago, um, I thought this piece, of this piece of history was um, interesting. The Queen Shabbat of Ur, Ur is, a, is now presently Iraq, um, she was buried with her surgical instruments so that she might be able to perform surgery in the afterlife. In the 19th century, there was a Dr. James Barry who concealed her sex throughout the duration of her trauma surgery practice. Despite this history, what deters women from seeking a career in surgery in the present times? Is it the lack of female role models? Is it the perception of the surgical lifestyle as inflexible for caregiving responsibilities? When you look at female chairs of departments of surgery in the U.S., there's only 23 out of over 168 departments. When you look at academic rank, which is very important for us, especially for promotion, only 8% of practicing women physicians have reached the um, professorship um, academic title. And only 13% are associate professors. So there's a lot of work to be done there. There's an initiative by the American Medical Women Association that's uh, hashtag NeedHerScience. And that's to address the uh, editorial boards of our major journals, that the majority of them don't have any representative uh, females on there. So why is this? We can say that this data shows that there's you know, um, definitely some inequalities, or maybe not even inequalities, just some uh, differences in balance. Why is there? Is, are we deterred by the all-boys club? Is it just a lack of family support? Or is it gendered perceptions? Or is it that there's a feeling that we have to perform better and stronger than our male counterparts? I can tell you that once again, when I was a surgical resident, it was, I was pulled aside at one point and said, I needed to be better, stronger, and more present than any of my male counterparts if I was going to succeed in the program. 
I was one of five uh, residents in my year. There was one other female. She didn't make it past the intern year. The story behind that is actually really um, disappointing, and it wasn't because of her, um, and she was just asked to leave the program. So it's real, and it had, it had happened. The pictures on this screen are also the, just some of the pioneers of women uh, department chairs in the United States. So then there's also the question, well, okay, so there's a, an, an imbalance. Is there a reason to increase women in leadership? Is there some, something that is behind that, and why should we do it? Um, so there's a, an article in, from Inspirity that was, um, it's about two years old, that looked at gender diversity in the workplace, what, five whys and hows. And why increase women? Well, they say that when Peterson Institute pulled 22,000 companies from 91 countries, they found organizations that had women in at least 30% of leadership positions improved their profits by six percentage points over competitors with fewer women. Females make up 51% of the U.S. population. So if you have females in leadership positions, you're going to be broadening your customer base, and you're going to be getting more creative ideas. It does improve problem solving. Having diverse teams actually is more creative. So not just adding women to it, but adding all um, diversity uh, measures to a team. You're going to get better solutions. It does help with recruiting and retention company-wide. And it's also the law. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964 prohibits uh, employers from discriminating against uh, employees on the basis of sex, race, color, national origin, and religion. There was also an article out of um, Canada where it looked at 100,000 uh, cases, and they um, suspected that the, the surgical cases performed by women had less mortality at one month post-op than their male counterparts. Now, how they determined that that was a good endpoint, I'm not quite sure. They didn't publish the, the methods of the study. But it was getting at that point that, you know, there isn't a reason that there should be this imbalance and that maybe we should be trying to see if we could get more females within um, the surgical disciplines. Some of the other things are women do have different leadership styles. They are generally less overconfident than men. They are more likely to lead through inspiration and alignment with meaning and purpose. They tend to focus on elevating others, and they're less transactional and more strategic. And they tend to empathize more than command. However, I do want, and this is the either or, I do want to say that the be best gender equality intervention is to focus on the equality of talent and potential. And this isn't, you know, either we promote more women at the expense of others, this is that we should be doing it for everybody. We should be focusing on equality across the board and promoting talent and potential, and not just looking that, you're, that you don't fit a certain stereotype. So how to navigate and what do women experience? So this, some of this is going to be personal history of what I've experienced, but it's also looking at some of the things that have been published about what other women have um, shared. The biggest one that comes up is the imposter syndrome. This is the struggle of feelings of inadequacy, self-doubt, low self-confidence, and confusion about how you reached high levels that you, that you reached. KPMG, which is a, a big global firm that does tax and audit, um, led a summit in 2020 looking at their women leaders. And they found that 75% of female executives across industries, across all of their um, branches, experience imposter syndrome in their careers. They defined it as a persistent inability to believe your success is deserved or achieved by working hard and possessing distinct skills, but rather meanings, uh, but rather due to the fact that you had good luck or you were in the right place at the right time. It is often accompanied with feelings of self-doubt, fear, failure, and self-sabotage. 
Where does this come from? So why? So you get up to your high-performing individual in an executive position. Where, how does this happen to you? Well, it comes from personal, familial, social experiences, stereotypes and labels, corporate culture, and workforce dynamics. They actually went on to say that if you're the first one in a position, the first female in a position, or the only female in that position, that your pressure and your imposter syndrome feelings of doubt um, occur more frequently. The common comment that people tell the women is that you can't do it all. Um, and one of the things that I'll get to towards the end is that I'm not enough. Because um, that's something that uh, women, if you ask women what they um, are most fearful of, is that they're not enough. And that cultural norms have bred stereotypical assumptions about how one should look to fit in. Whether you need to have gray hair and glasses, or whether it's okay to have long hair and wear a dress. Some of the comments I thought were important that came out of this report, and these are people that were willing to share um, their comments. The older I get, the more I worry that bias will show up and be mischaracterized as my lack of capability. There are many deep-rooted cultural biases held by men and women. So it's not just men that hold it. It's not just one person. It's society as a whole, and that they are, that is tough to change. As more women, especially African-American women, move up in organizations, the more people will question, how did they get that role? I think that speaks more to the insecurities of those around them than the, than the women feeling that they don't belong. Uh, Dr. Barbara Hamilton, who I know is um, known by some of the female surgeons on our staff, uh, started a blog called the TiredSuperHeroine.com. It's actually really good. Um, and what her supposition is, is that medicine selects a lot of high achievers, and, all, and that they get to this point called a rival fallacy. And what is a rival fallacy? Well, it means that when you're going through your training or when you're aspiring to be something, you say, okay, when I get to this point, my life will start. When I get to this point, my life will start. So for the medical professions, you say, okay, if I just get through medical school and I start residency, my life will start. When you finish residency and you get to be an attending, you say, okay, my life is going to start. But what she found is, is that women, even when they get to the, their careers, women still have to prove that they belong there, that they are just as dedicated as the guys, that they won't take too much maternity leave, that they can be, that they can be trusted and won't have untoward complications. And there are lots of paradoxes that occur uh, throughout um, your time. And uh, these are four paradoxes. And this is how women get perceived or how they're feeling they're be being perceived in certain situations. For example, if they're demanding yet caring, you know, how do you, you come into a room and you are demanding that something get done in a leadership position? Frequently, you're, you're thought of as cold, unreasonable. You know, the B word comes up, whereas if you are compared with a male counterpart, it's actually looking at as dedicated and um, goal-driven. Can you be authoritative and yet participative? And so when you act decisively as a woman, sometimes it gets uh, couched as she doesn't know what she's doing and she's just being authoritative. Um, and yet what they're looking for is them to be participative, but that isn't necessarily the norm that they hold a male counterpart to. Um, if you advocate for yourself, they, they think that you are you know, self-serving or you're getting a position because you are advocating for yourself and not really looking around you. And so when you see some women leaders, you see that they tend to promote, they do not promote themselves overtly. They never say that, oh, I achieved this. And you know, talking with the women in surgery group as well as the women in executives and the women in pediatrics, you know, that's one of the things when you compliment somebody and, and a, you know, a female in a leadership position, you say, good job, you really did that. 
a lot of times you'll hear them say, oh yeah, but I had help or it was this team or, which is great, but they will never overtly take the compliment. And being professional, the last paradox, can sometimes equate to being stiff or a cold fish or um, I've heard it all. And so it sometimes becomes hard when you're in these positions because you almost feel like you're on an island. This was, this was a great article that I came across and I thought I would want to share. Um, and this is actually global. So this is surgeons in general. Marriage and surgeons in general just don't seem to gel unless you're married to somebody that doesn't work. <laughs> or I can't say that because taking care of a family is a lot of work. So unless you're married to somebody that stays at home. So the American College of Surgeons back in 2010 uh, polled uh, over um, almost 8,000 surgeons. 90% of them had a domestic partner of some sort. Almost 50% of these domestic partners did not work outside the home. 16.4% had domestic partners that were physicians. These were typically, in this study, the younger, newer surgeons. And 34% um, were the non-physician working, uh, non working um, spouses. What they found is, is that the surgeons that had dual family physicians and where both of them were surgeons had an incredible amount of career conflict, delayed having children, um, and had, um, you know, a lot of them ended up in divorce. And so the surgical lifestyle becomes really, really challenging and doesn't always gel with marriage. So a lot of times when you see a surgeon and they may be distracted or something, there's probably a lot of other things that may be going on. This one I loved. These are male spouses of physicians, and these actually happen to be male spouses of internal medicine uh, docs. But I was reading through some of the comments of what these male spouses said, and I probably could hear my husband say about all of them, especially the last one. Um, one of them promoted that, you know, being a, a positive and how do you get through this, you have to set time for synchronizing your schedules, frequent verbal support, and have shared decision making, um, and that's important to a marriage. The second one actually said she's, as a resident, work anywhere between 80 and 90 hours, occasionally upwards of, of that per week. As a fellow, it was much better, closer to 60 or 70, which is still not particularly acceptable. It looks very much like the process of making a Marine, the sort of hazing. So I kind of laughed at that. <laughs> Um, the patients always come first. I phrase this to myself as the moral high ground. The spouse of a physician never has the moral high ground. No matter what the spouse's obligation is, it always is trumped by the duty to patients. And so I learned early on, if you're going to marry a physician, then you have to be ready to accept that fact. And the, then the last one, this one makes me laugh. I found that I couldn't control my own schedule in terms of being places. I had to be, or especially being away from home, because I couldn't depend on my spouse that they were going to be there. And so I've had, I've had many stories where I say, yeah, I'll pick up the kids. And then the time comes, and I'm obviously not there to pick up the kids. And he's already on his way because he knows I can't depend on her. <laughs> Um, one of the other important things to bring up, and this is, can be a, a very sensitive subject, um, is that women physicians struggle with infertility. Uh, one in four women physicians will experience this infertility and have a really hard time having a family. And that is compounded by the fact that the childbearing years often collide with the most grueling years of uh, medical training. For those of you that know me know that I struggled with that and I failed six IVFs before I was lucky enough to have children. It's something that really wasn't talked about. When you went into medical school or when you went into uh, picking your career, you didn't really uh, hear about some of the, the challenges of this. And there's not a lot of time within any of our training programs that allow for you to address this or to mitigate this early on. This was a New York Times article in December 2019 uh, written by Emma Goldberg. Um, and uh, it's a great story. And it gets at the fact that I am not enough. So 
40% of pregnant surgery residents consider dropping out. So this is one of the surgery residents sharing her story. The alarm went off one day in her fourth year of surgical residency. Her son was just three months old, had developed a fever. She couldn't be late for her operating uh, room shift, but his daycare wouldn't accept him if he was sick. So she did what desperate moms do. She slipped liquid Tylenol into his bottle in the hopes, don't let the ID docs hear this, (laughs) in the hopes of lowering his temperature and dropping him off. Later that day, she stood in surgery with her eyes continually checking the clock, willing the operation to finish in time for pickup. She prayed that the daycare wouldn't realize he was feverish and that they hadn't noticed that his milk had turned a medicine pink. I felt like I, was being, I felt like I wasn't being a great mom or partner or resident, said Dr. Rangel, 42, who now works at, um, as a surgeon at Harvard Medical School. Um, she's like, something had to give, and I thought about quitting a lot. So even if our medical students that aspire to be surgeons make it into a surgical residency, almost half of them decide at some point that they want to quit. I know that I did. I I wanted to quit after my second year of residency. And so it becomes this whole struggle, your spouse, your children, and you work in your patients. And how do you deal with all of that? And how do we change the paradigm? Well, we start talking about it. This is a picture of Andrea Hayes Jordan. She is one of the first um, African-American pediatric surgeons in 2006 that introduced an operation here in the United States um, called the HIPEC uh, for um, children that suffer from desmoplastic small round blue cell tumor. And that's a universally a fetal um, cancer. And she has really impacted their care by delivering this really arduous um, treatment. And she's actually come here and helped Dr. Rader with one of the patients that we had. Um, and she is now leading up the uh, Division of Pediatric Surgery at UNC Health. And they have a whole initiative called Women Forward, Our America. Looking at pediatrics, um, it is a prevalent problem in pediatrics and Spectre et al. in pediatrics in 2019 listed some things that can be done and how we can try to change the paradigm. What they uh, reported that in 2017, women comprised 72.3% of the pediatrics residents. However, in 2018, women represented only about 26% of pediatric chairs. So there's a really big disparate difference there. So what they propose is that there's six steps. Examine the equity, diversity, and inclusion data. So get the data, share the results, look at causality. What are some of the reasons behind this? Try to implement some strategic interventions, look at your outcomes and adjust your strategies, and then really, really report on it and report on it and get it out there. There are several groups that they identified that are imperative to be joining in on this uh, investigation. These are academic medical centers, hospitals, healthcare organizations, practices, medical societies, journals, and funding agencies. And that's where the American Medical Women's Association came out with Need Her Science, is to really address some of the inequities in um, journals. Again, I want to say it's not an either or. This isn't at the, to be done at the expense of another individual or another cultural group. This is for us working together to understand and try to create a fair and promote people on talent, um, aspiration, um, and be equitable about it. We have to disrupt denial, become aware of how these inequalities show up in our culture and what our perceived norms are. Know our barriers. Okay, so role conflict. This is managing being a worker, wife, and a mother. Recognize that all these conflicts become much more difficult when you are intersecting identities like race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, religion, or age. And also think about identity conflicts. When you're trying to lead in a male-dominated uh, management style, it may not come easy to you to try to manage you know, when there is a certain way of doing things and you're trying to do it based on your personality or what you think. 
And we have to manage the moments. By managing the moments is that we need to talk about it. And you need to talk about it in the moment. You can't delay, you can't say, well, I'm gonna to go to this symposium and then maybe I'll talk about it. You have to address behaviors, conflicts, and subtleties upfront and have a conversation about it. It's not about being punitive. It's not about being judgmental yourself. It's about opening it up and saying, hey, did you know when you said this or did this, this person felt this way? And just getting it out in the open because the more we get to talk about it and the more we communicate about it, the more we're gonna understand how each of us feels and we're gonna to get to a better place. One of the quotes that stuck with me is, is that being in a position to tackle inequality that you yourself may never experience is an ultimate privilege. And I could probably spend a whole hour talking about sponsorship and mentorship. This is where we start to make change. This is where we have an idea, we grow a seed, and then we grow a plant. And to sponsor somebody means you identify somebody and you help promote them throughout their careers to get to a place of leadership. Meaning thinking about strategic uh, councils that they can be on, strategic projects that they can take on, and really promoting them and, and coaching them across the norm. Mentorship means that you coach people, you be open and you give them feedback and you mentor them in a process or in an environment to help them grow. This is imperative for us to do and elevate others. It's not about just elevating yourself, but it's about looking around and trying to elevate all types, especially if you identify talents and qualities in one person that you think would be beneficial for a certain program or project. And I can't under under communicate the value of connectivity. Um, you know, we started the women in surgery probably about two and a half years ago. And I really have to do a shout out to Jeannie and to Lisa Morello because without them, I could never have done all the stuff that's done. And the fellow women in surgery are unbelievable. This has grown from an organic, you know, meeting at Jay's into something that, you know, is beyond uh, one individual. Uh, connecting with each other, doing things like kickboxing. Uh, we're trying to see if we can rent a roller ring that was Dr. Murray's, a roller skating ring, that was Dr. Murray's idea, um, to watching movies, um, to doing important strategies, which I'll get into in the next slide. Really having people that you can bounce things off of and talk about um, different challenges that you may have has been an experience un, un, unparalleled. With that said, Dr. Edelheit and um, a strategic group have uh, developed the Pediatric Women Relate, the power group, and they are also launching into connecting everybody, having a forum whereby um, people can talk about strategies for growth, leadership, mentorship, sponsorship. It's fantastic. Um, the bottom left uh, shows the women in surgery meeting the women in, in executive management, because I think that there are a lot of things um, and ideas that we share. And it was great getting everybody together to just hear about life experiences and really get to know each other. It was amazing to me how many of us didn't know who the other one was. And one of the things that I always um, advocate is that it's great to have groups, but if you're not gonna try to make a change, it's not okay to just have a group that you're gonna sit around and complain and not have a strategy for moving forward or a strategy to impact in a positive way your community. And one of the ways to do that is to figure out how to build relationships at work. It is not uncommon um, that women at work cannot do some of the, the business meetings, go out for a drink after, be part of a bourbon club, a cigar club, et cetera, because they have other responsibilities and other desires to be at home. So leverage informal norms and seize opportunities to connect. You can make meaningless time more meaningful, which means um, arrive five minutes early to a meeting, 
come in 10 minutes early and walk around. Just connect with people and show that you're interested or that you want to communicate with them and get to know them. Find an activity that you like. For example, um, a lot of the women in surgery like to walk around the West Hartford Reservoir, and they actually do it on an almost routine basis. Invite your colleagues, invite their kids, invite their, their, their puppy kids, um, and, and really do something that, that you enjoy. And then face forward. This is something that I know I could uh, learn from, is uh, put down your phone, look people in the eye, and be fully present for them when you have that small amount of time to be with them. And use your talent to educate. This is one of the things that was born out of the women in surgery. And this is a podcast. So we're in season two already of the podcast. We have over 300 downloads. Um, and we are looking at different um, topics. To, this season two is based on gender. And the last one that they just recorded, which I think was two days ago, was behavior perceptions, um, which would be perfect for this, uh, this diversity talk. And really what we're doing is we're getting around um, as a group, talking about our experiences, but then having really tangible articles that we've reviewed. Um, and, and then the end of it is always strategies to move forward or strategies to deal with it or how to handle it. Um, and I think it's really important that if you're going to do something, try to have a positive impact at the, at the um, end of it. We also have a Women in Surgery blog and a Women in Surgery Instagram page. And the purpose of this is for inspirational quotes um, we have recent posts that save your vision month. So how to, you know, optimize your vision. We always post random OR photos. That seems to be what we like to do. Um, we promote our podcast. We have inspirational quotes and we celebrate things such as National Women Physicians Day. We have over 341 followers and it's growing daily with each post. And then to my fellow women colleagues across the norm, what I want you to say is be kind to yourself. You are enough. Okay. Stop questioning yourself all the time about worthiness. That's not worth it. That's not going to get you anywhere. You are worthy. You wouldn't have gotten here had you not worked hard to get there. Negotiating isn't greedy. It's a requirement, and that's a whole other topic <laughs> that could take an hour. Um, but just remember, you are worth it, so you should be negotiating for it. Build connectivity and networks. Pick your head up, look at people, connect with them, and try to make the world a better place. And work together. This isn't an either-or scenario. Cultural equity should span the entire culture, not one group versus another. This is um, Dr. Barbara Hamilton's The Tired um, Superheroine um, blog. And I liked this quote, becoming empowered as a female physician has often meant stepping outside my comfort zone, continuous learning and finding like-minded people. So that's my mission for you guys or my ask for you guys moving forward. And then join organizations that resonate with your values to try to help create a positive change. Two such organizations are the American Medical Women's Association and the Women in Surgery Group for the American College of Surgeons. And finally, just a thank you for my family to you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, truly, truly inspiring. And you certainly live your values. Uh, and, and I love your husband, John. He's a great guy. <laughs> um, you, you do need a, a supportive partner in this process. And I think you've, you've emphasized that it is so important to support each other. Um, truly inspiring. We have, a, we have a number of questions here that have come up. And this one's a little funny one. It's just, Dr. Fink, do you want to be buried with your surgical instruments? <laughs> no, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> you never know when you're going to need that. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that, that's just a funny comment. So um, from Dr. Silverman, a truly inspiring and motivated presentation. Thank you very much. I mean, those are the comments that I'm getting from, it's from Rebecca Moles. Uh, who, who leads our, uh, uh, our office for faculty uh, development and, and uh, sponsorships. And 
what are your thoughts about the academic norm that only full professors are offered, considered worthy of many leadership positions, even those for which full professorship in your field is unrelated? Seems to be a cycle, few female professors, few females in academic leadership. I agree, and that's a tough question um, because it is true, right? Sometimes women lag a little bit behind getting the academic promotions mainly because they've had to take time off to have a family or they've had other obligations. And so by the time they re-enter the workforce, um, they're a little bit behind, especially in years. And then when you're looking at some of the leadership positions, it's almost an unfair advantage if you know uh, they're saying that you have to be a full professor before you can apply for a certain position. I don't necessarily think it's fair. Once again, I think it's based on your talent, your personality, and your tenacity and your aspiration for whatever uh, job that, that they're looking for a leader for. And that should be what's held um, utmost and forefront. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with that. And we, we have emphasized, uh, you know, multiple ways for promotion, which, which uh, you know, there are just so many venues, at least at the UConn Medical School. Uh, and, and you, Chris, and I think have worked hard to try to make sure that, uh, that individuals that are uh, assistant professors can get to the associate professor level using a variety of mechanisms which are available. And so in some cases, people are just afraid that they're not going to get promoted. And, and the reality is that with the great work that they're doing, they will get promoted. And we just have to work with you. Well, I think it's been very um, instrumental having Dr. Bookland, Dr. Zemsky, and Dr. Moles on the faculty development, you know, creating that task force. Because we are now coming to you saying, hey, you're up. Your, your five years here is up. Let's think about your promotion. Um, and, you know, I think it, it's one of my missions as a surgeon in chief, and I know for Juan, it's one of his, is that we need to get you guys promoted. You guys are working really, really hard, and you deserve it. And, and this is a requirement by the medical school currently that uh, when you meet with your with your faculty as a division chief or, or physician in chief, surgeon in chief, that you need to have a discussion about promotion and the venue and the pathway for promotion, there, and there are many. Uh, another question, when interacting with female physicians and surgeons, what are the most common mistakes made by well-intended allies in the medical field? Depends on which side of the spectrum you're coming from. Um, there are a lot of well-intended mistakes. Um, Things, personal experiences that I've had is when it's automatically assumed that I need to leave early to go pick up the kids or uh, they'll make a off-color joke. You know, the, I always say the operating room is a different microenvironment and there are certain barriers that get um, blurred. Um, and to, you know, I've been in experiences where I've been operating with a surgeon and, you know, they'll make an off-color remark that doesn't really resonate well as a female. Um, and that's, that's common in the surgical disciplines. Now, as women, um, some of the common things that we may misstep is, is we think it's okay or we pretend it's okay and we don't share our feelings saying, hey, that, that really kind of didn't resonate well with me. Um, and, you know, we don't, we just walk away instead of trying for it. We just think that we are not worthy and we walk away. So I think that there's a lot of cultural norms that are like this. I, you know, in fact, I've shared with some people, when I told my family I wanted to be a, a physician, it was my father that said, women aren't physicians. He didn't know any better. You know, he grew up in a household that didn't have anybody that went to college. So this wasn't anything new. He wasn't being, so once again, it's not an either or. And I don't think in every instance it's nefarious or ill-intended. I think it was just what he knew. And so changing what people know will only occur if we communicate and connect with everybody and say that that's not, that's not okay. I fully agree. Uh, it's another comment. Thank you, Dr. Fink. It is very powerful, very powerful to hear you telling us we, we are enough and to stop questioning our worthiness. Thank you so much for this message. Absolutely. Um, 
another comment. Uh, uh, excellent presentation, Dr. Fink. Thank you for your leadership in lifting up all women. That's from Deb Papas. Oh, thanks, Deb. Fully agree with that. Uh, 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 Dr. Fink, that was amazing. From Mary Kate Nowablewski, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce it. Um, so good and needed. Another comment and, uh, and there, a question: Do you think salary transparency is important for the goal of gender equality for physicians? Yes. Um, it, it's funny because I went to Orange Theory this morning, and my husband and I, on the way back, were arguing about the gender gap, and he is um, or the the salary gap in in gender inequality. And he's firmly on the, on the side that it's not always that, that they preferentially pay women less. It's that it's just what's happened. And so we got into a pretty heated discussion um, about it <laughs> because of uh, some of the things that, um, you know, he believed. And it's, it's true. I think the only time we're going to get to the bottom of this is to transparently share the data and to show and, and to pay for performance, pay for potential, pay for talent. It's not to say just because you're a woman, you're going to get, you know, the same salary as your counterpart. It's you have to work and do the, the job of what the counterpart is doing and you have to do your job. Um, and that's where some of the common, um, I think some of the people that are not as educated on this topic believe is that just because you're a woman, you're going to get paid more because we've said that there's a, uh, an inequality in pay. That's not true. Um, but I think transparency is going to be um, imperative so that we can start um, making it right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Fink. Applicable to all women in the organization looking to blaze a trail and work in leadership. Uh, so this thank is you. inspiring everyone across. Um, from Joy Hong, uh, thank you. Can't wait to share your message with my daughter heading to medical school. Your talk is inspiring. Awesome, yeah, I love it. That's exactly the the message that we have to that we have to. Um, uh, so so a lot of a lot of comments. Uh, thank you for being my niece's idol and many other women. So. Oh. I think we yeah we need a cape for for Dr. Fink and um, you know and again thank you a, a question you know for my own reflections Chris and uh, obviously be married to a um, uh, to a fabulous uh, woman physician who is also in 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 leadership um, the you know a key question that comes up is at the time you have your children um, the you know there is that back and forth pressure of uh, of motherhood family life, and then yet all the pressures that are related to the academics, uh, your practice. Uh, so can you share a message of, of the young uh, faculty women that we have, there are many, uh, or nurses or, uh, or, or, or you know, leaders in the organization that uh, are in their late 20s and 30s and they're having kids right now. And, and you know, that, that struggle of going, you know, being with the kids, being at home, but yet not falling back in what the career path, which is, you know, the struggle that people have had. Your thoughts on that? Um, the, the message that I would share is, first of all, enjoy your children. Um, it only comes once, and knowing that my kids are now 16, 13, and 9, the, the years just fly by, and, and it's a miracle struggling to have children. Um, it's a miracle to be able to have them and to impact a life and to have something of yours, so enjoy your time. The, the job will always be there. Yes, you have to be present, and sometimes does it feel bad because you may not be keeping up with, with everybody else? It does feel bad, but you can do it. What my recommendation is is to reach out to somebody um, and just get, get a mentor. Get somebody that's going to help you through navigate it. Every, every division is a little bit different. Surgery is a little bit different than pediatrics, which is a little bit different than um, nursing. But reach out to somebody that may have gone through it already and find out some of the strategies that they used. Um, because a lot of times we put a lot on ourselves, 
that we probably don't necessarily have to. Uh, and we think that, oh, everybody's judging me because of, you know, I'm out on maternity leave. And people probably aren't even thinking about it. Um, and so reach out to, to somebody that's been through it. You can always reach out to me. I'm happy to talk, talk you through some of the strategies that I did, what I did well, what I didn't do so well, um, and learn from that, learn from past experiences. Yeah, thank you. Um, if, if I'm Esperanza Lesbian, Dr. Fink, wonderful presentation, very inspirational. From Lisa Morella, Dr. Fink, you're also an amazing leader of people. Will you please share your perspective on leading from alongside that I have heard you talk about so eloquently? This is one of my favorite um, quotes. Uh, Jim Mathis is um, somebody that my actually worked, my husband worked for him at one of the education tech schools, and he actually has a ranch in Wyoming. Um, and he says that his leadership principle, um, he bases on his cattle drive. And I thought that that was interesting. So I wanted to delve a little deeper. And I said, well, what? I don't understand. He goes, well, when you go on a cattle drive, if you lead from behind, you're always flogging the cattle that can't keep up. He's like, and that's not always the best because you don't see where the leaders of the pack are. If you lead from the front, you're going to leave some of your cattle behind. And that's not the best. The best way to lead a team is always to lead alongside because then you can get a gauge of this, the people that can keep up or to, that can drive and lead. And you can see the ones that maybe um, fall in a little bit behind and help them out. So always lead by the side, always lead alongside. That's fantastic. Um, uh, from Grace Hong, uh, who's uh, one of our fabulous APRNs in infectious disease and who has been a, who's been a leader in, in, during this pandemic in so many ways and has two beautiful kids at home. Um, so thank you, Grace, for this question. And says, thank you, Dr. Salazar, for asking that question re regarding motherhood and careers. And thank you, Dr. Fink, for your response. This hits close to home. This has been illuminating and inspiring. So uh, thank Thanks, you, Grace, Grace, for the question. Um, I have uh, something else we don't talk about is flexibility and scheduling. One positive of this pandemic is that it's allowed our group to try our new ways of scheduling clinical time that some female members had been suggesting for some time. It went great, better supports family life and allowed everyone to be academically productive. One of the things I struggled with before the pandemic was always making those 7 a.m. meetings, which meant I was never able to drop my children off at school or at their bus. Um, now with the benefit of Zoom, um, I can Zoom in. Granted, I'm probably not supposed to be Zooming and driving, but it gives me a little bit more time in the morning with my children. Um, and I think it's made a lot of difference. So I agree, flexible scheduling, doing things later. We've recognized the need for interacting with our patients um, at later time periods, right? When they get home from school. So maybe you can start a little later, end a little later, but you're getting some of that other quality time with your children that you may not have had before. It's a great question Agreed. and great point. Uh, from Alex uh, Hogan, one of our hospitalists, can you share with us what Connecticut Children's is doing to increase uh, salary visibility transparency? That is a great question. And it is something we are working with, um, with HR. We have something called comp ratios where we look at the comp ratios across the board, um, targeting a comp ratio of one, meaning that your salary is equivalent to your median and your benchmark. And then we're also looking at it across the divisions and across males and females. Um, and so, um, and race and ethnicity actually has been part of the data. We are working on a plan to become transparent with that and share that. Yeah, and we have those numbers. And uh, by the way, anyone anyone who wants to see them is absolutely open. So the, the division chiefs can certainly do that with you. Uh, and either Chris or I will actually share the information. There's, absolutely. There's transparency is very important. Um, question, I've been trying to get a group like the ones you describe off the ground in my department, but I'm struggling. I even had a leader in the department say he didn't think it would be beneficial for anyone. At the, it sounds like ineffective work-life balance. What recommendations do you have to get a peer group off the ground? That's a great question. 
it's funny because I can resonate with the story. I recently joined the American College of Surgeons um, Connecticut chapter meeting. I was invited because they wanted, um, uh, they wanted a leader to reinvigorate the women in surgery chapter for Connecticut. And so I joined in and sat with this council um, that there were two women on it. Um, the rest were older men. And I pitched my idea and how I would foresee it going. And one of the surgeons actually said, well, I'm not sure why we need this. We have women on our council already. And was really, really, it wasn't something that he was saying to be funny or, or nefarious. Again, it wasn't ill-intended. That's really, truly what he believed. When you have a project that somebody may not believe is valuable, or when you have a project that maybe your leader doesn't feel is valuable, it becomes more challenging to try to get it off the ground. I think if you could develop um, within the group, I'm not sure how big your group is, some consensus or some idea as to how to push it forward um, and then present facts to your leader, that's a great way. Then the other thing is, is that if it's a really great idea or if it's really something you're impassioned about, um, you can always uh, speak to someone else um, in another division or to Juan or myself, um, and we can see what resources there might be if, if this we really can push it forward. Yeah, I think there's a great template that you've created, Chris, and it can be uh, moved and shared to other places. Uh, right. Flexibility and schedule needs to be an institutional priority for both physicians and even more for nurses. This is a huge issue. Nursing leadership needs to recognize this and develop solutions. I mean, we certainly can work with Sarah on this. Yes, very we directly. can work with Sarah. It is, it is definitely a hot topic um, and um, making change. I, I do, and, and Juan and I have talked about this a lot, the amount of, in, um, when we went down for the pandemic, right, the amount of effort that we all concentrated on one thing, we were able to do so much in such a little bit of time. And I feel like once we start getting operations back, we kind of get all, um, you know, scattered in different priorities and, and being very reactive. Flexibility and scheduling is very, very important for the institution, for the organization, and for, for the region. Um, and I think we do have to have a dedicated work group that looks at it across the board, not just for nursing, but for everybody that works in our institution. Uh, from Danielle Chenard, uh, thank you, Dr. Fink, for normalizing the balance of working, being a mom, and being a leader. Can you share your ideas on any future plans for a mentorship program at Connecticut Children's? That's awesome, a mentorship program. So I know that the Office of Faculty Development is really working hard to try to get a mentorship program, which I think is excellent. Um, I think joining any of the peer groups that you have can help with mentorship, but and, and, and one of the things that I want to say is sponsorship is just as important as mentorship. And, you know, before I embarked upon this, I actually didn't recognize the difference between the two, but also finding a sponsor, being bold enough to go and ask somebody to be your sponsor is really empowering and that can get you to the next step. So I uh, look to Dr. Moles and Dr. Bookland and Dr. Zemsky because they are trying to develop mentorship. Um, yeah, the message I'm hearing is that while we have developed uh, a lot of this for the faculty, that we need to expand that to non-faculty areas uh, within the institution, sort of modeling to what we have, but maybe moving it in that direction. And so, Danielle, thank you for your question. I agree. I think it's very important. Um, your colleague, Dr. Pierce, you rock. So does that mean she needs to dance, Kristen? I mean, <laughs> so do you. Fantastic. Um, uh, I think those are the... Uh, I don't think we have any more questions. So, uh, Chris, thank you again for your leadership, for this inspirational presentation to all of us. We learn every day. Um, this is part of our, our DEI culture here at Connecticut Children's moving forward. And I think the sky's the limit of the things that we can do, and we can lead the way for other institutions showing them what can be done. So, again, thank you, everyone, for joining. We had almost 200 people in this session. Uh, don't forget to donate to the Hartford Public High. Um, and we need to get to over 1,500. Uh, and, and maybe even higher so we can uh, sponsor two kids uh, in the city. Uh, we will take a break.
and then come back, um, I believe I said, let me see, let me, let me look. 10.30, we have, we'll have our last presentation um, by Carolyn Wilkins. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic presentation. Please stay with us. Um, Dr. Spiegelman will come back and uh, introduce the speaker and the questions. Uh, thank you again for uh, being with us. A fantastic outcome. Take care. Bye-bye. It is a... It is... It is an absolute distinct pleasure and honor to introduce our next speaker, the Reverend Carolyn Wilkins. Uh, Reverend Carolyn Wilkins is the founder of Imagine Consulting, a personal development consulting company, and the minister and spiritual director of Inspirational Ministries. She's a featured speaker, educator, youth advisor, and workshop leader on nonviolence, inclusivity, social justice, and ethical and spiritual leadership leadership. Uh, Reverend Wilkins was a marketing executive with the Xerox Corporation, responsible for product launch, reseller channels, and a director of training for that division as well. During her 23 years tenure at Xerox, she was the founding member and president of the Black Women's Leadership Council. Uh, Reverend Wilkins has had the honor of working as a global project manager for the Oprah Winfrey Network Belief Program, has traveled all over the world for international humanitarian projects. Reverend Wilkins is also the recipient of too many awards to mention here. And it is such a pleasure to have you speak at our initial symposium today. And welcome from the beautiful state of New Mexico as well. I'd like to present Dr. Reverend Wilkins. Thank you so much, Dr. Swingleman. And I also appreciate the speakers that came before me, Dr. Fawani and Dr. Fink, for doing a marvelous job and actually being uh, leaders in the medical field. Uh, this morning, we're going to delve into how to embrace diversity and inclusivity in our environments. And as we look at the uh, next slide, uh, we'll look at some of the objectives that we intend to discuss today. The first is to clarify what we mean. Uh, there are a lot of terms used in this um, world of diversity and equity, and we'll talk about the different meanings and how they affect uh, programs that you might have in your environment. Well, next to a process that will help us connect and understand our differences. And then lastly, uh, look at ways of building a sense of belonging. So I am so appreciative of those who are on the program and those who will listen later. This is such an important conversation at this time. You're all so aware of what's happening in the news, what's happening from a standpoint of the George Floyd situation, um, the court system that is happening today, and the conversations that have separated us versus bringing us together. 
but I don't can't think of it in the more important time for us to have this conversation so that we can be comfortable in working with each other and creating an environment that everyone feels welcome. I'm going to share this, and there's an embarrassing picture of me. Um, many years ago, as I was the uh, director of national sales for part of an organization in Xerox. The reason I put this picture here is um, we won a Malcolm Baldridge Award for our division, uh, which is a global program and uh, very important in the corporate world. But just a quick overview of what my journey is and how it affects why I'm here today. I began in a very unusual way by getting a degree in computer science and operations research. Now, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but just to let you know, it was a few years ago. And number one, most people did not know about computer science, let alone being a programmer or a systems analyst. So I was the first. And my journey has been one of being a first as well as being an advocate. There's no job that I've had in most of my career that they haven't said, oh, you're the first female, you're the first African-American, whether it was in the corporate world, the consulting world, or the religious world. In addition to a bachelor's, I have a master's and some other things. And um, as I have gone through, if you'll go back to that other slide, as I have gone through the world of marketing and management, um, I've also spent a lot of time on race, justice, and peace programs. Working with young people in Los Angeles who come from many different backgrounds. So they're not only racial conversations, but the conversation that uh, Dr. Fulwani had about uh, sex and gender, uh, participating with the organizations on nonviolence and how the police department interacts with people that they're not sure of the gender assignment and, and what who they are looking at, who people are, and how to address people. Uh, we've been involved in healing circles as well as global programs. But I'm sharing this to just have you have a sense that I have been involved in this work with my heart as well as my skills. So as we move forward, the first conversation is, what does this word diversity mean? When I was in the workforce, Diversity was not a conversation. We actually talked about affirmative action. And I have a feeling that many of you know that term. They don't use it anymore. But diversity in this world is understanding and accepting and most importantly, valuing our differences. And the list of what is included 
often begins with race, ethnicity, gender, age, religion, a disability, sexual orientation, education, national origin. I've added size, and I think, um, I believe on your website for Connecticut Children's, you have a few more descriptors of what diversity is. But overall, diversity is accepting all of us, however we show up. The next word that we're going to look at is inclusivity. And from the definitions that I have uh, used in the past, inclusivity refers to the practice or policy of providing equal access. So the focus is on the access to opportunities and resources. It often includes behavioral norms that ensure people feel welcome. Or that's the intent, but often those of you who have walked into environments that you are different, so seldom do you feel welcome. And then the last word we'll look at is equity. And we'll actually look at it from a standpoint of equality, which is often used. And it, the pictures are sometimes worth a thousand words. So I'd like you to take the journey of from equality to equity to justice. So the image under equality shows that there are three people of three different sizes, three different backgrounds. And under equality, everyone receives a benefit from the same kind of support. But as you see, people of different needs aren't always given the benefit. So someone who is tall enough or has all the things they need, don't really need the box, but they get the box anyway. And then there are others who are benefiting from having the box given. And then there's some that are still in trouble because the box doesn't support them. Under equity, people get the support they need. And so many programs are designed around equity. They want, depending on the organization, or the work group within the organization. They want people to feel accepted and comfortable and supported in whatever work environment they're in. But the reason that advocates move to justice is so that structural barriers are taken down. In this case, it's showing structural barriers, which are physical, but often structural barriers are what's written. The evolution of what we talked about is from affirmative action, which I mentioned, is how everything started. And with affirmative action, the focus was on 
choosing a person from a different class, a different category that wasn't necessarily in what was often an all white male environment. But moving to diversity, inclusion, and equity, the real concern is in the center. And as you look at the yellow circle, the issue is power, privilege, sometimes racism, sexism, but the importance is this is all about power, opportunity, and privilege. So as we move forth, in the healthcare system, there's specific issues, and I'm not going through all of them, and my intent is not to demean or discourage, but to clarify. So often when I do programs, organizations and people within a program are trying to get to an endpoint without understanding and doing the detail. I share it with you that my degree is in computer science and operations research. So I am big on going back and investigating and understanding what is underneath the situation. It's similar to the healthcare system of diagnosis. In the particular situation we have in healthcare, there's some systemic issues that I assess to wealth and education. So some people are able to get degrees so they can be doctors and some are not. Some of the clients are dealing, the people that you have that come in, there we cannot deny that there's often different treatment depending on where the health facility is or where the person comes from. So it's a question of access and affordability. In the work environment that you're in, as much as we'd like for that not to happen, doctors, nurses, staff, and admin have different levels of authority and power and status. I say this from a very personal point of view because my mother was a nurse for 36 years. She was proud to be a LPN, but started out as a nurse's aide. In fact, I'm gonna digress here for a moment. When there was a conversation about COVID availability and vaccines, what I'm talking about on this slide has shown up around the country. So the third area here is health, disease, and treatment, availability, acceptance, fear based on history. So when we talk about COVID, I want to stay here in this discussion about systemic issues. There's not only a sense of inequality, but it created fear that we all know about, that some people who are in disparate groups 
are not even looking at getting a vaccine because of the concern of things that have happened in the past. Even though they may not know the detail of how they were done, it's part of a story that has carried over. There's also a challenge that comes in who was served first. So when I did this particular uh, slide, I did it in talking about systemic issues in general on healthcare and I'm not meaning to offend Connecticut children's, but I know that you are part of a bigger system. So as we move, move forward, <clears throat> I'm going to go a little bit deeper on how this all began. Now you may be familiar with this, but there are many of you who may not. <clears throat> but I looked into the history of medicine and healthcare and found that the first medical society was organized in Boston way back in 1735. And where did the doctors come from? They came from wealthy families of men who had gone to medical school in Scotland. So within the healthcare industry, I've noted four different things just for you to better understand why underneath the organization that has been built, a proud and fabulous organization called Connecticut Children, there are underlying foundational issues that if you're not aware of, they get in the way of creating a new opportunity. So I begin in the middle, men as doctors, and we already had Dr. Fink tell us her story about being a doctor and have people not even considering her as a doctor because she was a female. So not only were the first medical schools um, open just to men, they were in some of the wealthiest cities, Boston, New York, and Philadelphia back in the 1700s. But I also know that this other fact is that some of those who didn't go to school still became doctors because they learned as apprentices. But they still were considered powerful and formidable in what they were doing as men. Uh, looking at the left side of this table, there are women as nurses. And they began in colonial times in supporting. Uh, mid, as midwives and in childbirth. Actually, women did most of the work in that until it was shifted in the 20th century. And um, it became a profession. Nursing became a profession in the 19th century for young women of all social backgrounds. Now, I 
uh, put a little note on there. I put young white woman because there it was not really open to minorities. If we go to the right, um, just little notes that in the colonial area, women did play a role. And there are social programs that really didn't start until the 50s and 60s that opened the door to minority women becoming part of the program as CNAs and LPNs. And by the way, I see that the first hospital was in 1736 in New York City. Uh, Bellevue Hospital was the first hospital in the United States. So what I'd like to do is invite you to participate in a survey on what divides us. And you should be able to see a link in the chat box that will give us a survey. And I invite you to answer the questions. It'll only take a few moments. And we'll have a sense of what has come up. So the questions, you'll find some of the questions there. And I've asked for your role. I've invited you to say ways that you've experienced or been affected by discrimination. A very simple question of what group team a working group makes you feel the most respected and included. And in contrast, is there a team that you feel you are not respected or included? And as you are completing that doc, we will be getting the feedback from that. And we'll share that with you shortly. 
So we'll go to the next slide now. I, um, before we move into the next space, I put this slide of a swing bridge to tell you a little story. Uh, I actually was on one of these. It's in uh, Ghana, the Kakun National Park and they call it a canopy walk. And these are actually bridges that are built, as you see the wood slats across, and it's kind of a rope sides. And when I went to uh, visit Ghana many years ago, this is one of the highlights that we were going to have the opportunity to step into a place that is unusual of these rope bridges. And from the hotel we were staying in, it took about an hour and a half to get there. And then once we got to the park, it was another 45 minutes or so to go up the mountain from the lodge to get to the area that the bridge was in, the rope bridge. So as you might imagine, I was with a group of about 50 people. We all were bravely going through the process and at the same time holding on to whoever we were with saying, do we want to do this? Is this something that's important? And maybe I can back down. And as we got higher and higher up to get to where the bridge started, a few people said, I don't know if I want to do this. Maybe I'll back down. But quite honestly, if they didn't go, they would be left because the rest of us were going to move ahead. I made the decision to go. And a little side note, you couldn't go as a group. You could only go by yourself. And you couldn't start until someone else was at least halfway across the bridge. So when my turn came, I think I was like number 20, um, I was able to move through the bridge and get to a spot of rest. What they didn't tell me was that there wasn't just one bridge, there were six bridges. So I got to the end of the first one, and then there was someone there saying, I'm so happy for you. We're excited. There were three or four people. Now here's another one. And the same thing happened four more times. So the journey wasn't what I thought when I first looked. But at the end, there were a group of people celebrating me as I came across the last bridge. The reason I'm putting this in is it's similar to the work that you're undertaking 
in diversity, inclusivity, and equity. You may feel alone sometimes while you are dealing with situations and challenges. You may not have anyone with you when someone says something to you, but you began the journey and it'll be worth it in the end. The lady on the right is my mother and I put her there because she's evidence of the journey in being in hospitals and being in nursing and setting a stage perhaps for some of you. We can move to the next slide. So here's um, an area of positive outcome. Inclusion is a practice that enables an organization to function at its peak capacity and incorporate and, and innovate in unforeseen ways. The, the reason that I'm putting these three things down is inclusion, diversity, and equity need to become an organizational imperative. We have to, you as an organization, must say this is important to us. So first begins with a practice, then there must be a level of accountability. And the way that it's been done in previous organizations that I've worked with, it has to be incorporated into the business model. Whatever you receive payment on, whatever your um, uh, increases are based on, whatever your uh, advancements are based on, this level of inclusion must be a point that is included in that. The last area is culture. This is not easy to do, but you must redefine and set up ways to create a new organizational culture so that people feel included. as we move to the next conversation. There's also an area for a deeper commitment. A diversity, equity, and inclusion plan is only effective if it's built with these other ideas. There has to be an intention, a shared vision, for what is gonna happen. Why are you doing it? What's the reason that you want to have this as a way of participating? Is the intent to fill numbers? Is the intent for you to follow the law? Is the intent for you to become a broader organization? If I am one of the people who is participating at Connecticut Children's, what is the evidence that is going to show that you are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion? 
So this is what comes from creating teams that put programs together. That you look at it from a standpoint of what is the evidence that shows we're doing this. And then the last area is demonstration. As a person of color, as a person of a different gender, as a person who is different abled, how will they feel when they come into your space? What will it feel like for them? What is their experience? So this is not the kind of program that sometimes people take. They get started, they get numbers together, and they put a plan together without thinking in a forward direction. They're not looking at what's the impact on the people who are walking into my facility, into my environment, into the space that we call community. And that's what this is, creating community. And as you create community, you want everyone to be welcome. So you move to the next slide. I'd like for you to take a moment, and this may be unusual, it could be uncomfortable, but I invite you to let's take about two minutes to have some personal reflection on this. We're gonna be still for a few moments. And in the world that you live in, you don't always get to be still. And here is, uh, so first, before we do the poll, I'd like you to close your eyes and think about what is the highest vision for inclusivity at Connecticut Children's? What is the highest vision? What must our organization become? In order for this vision to take effect, what or who must we become? And the last question, what must we release or let go of? What is standing in the way for the success of this organization to be considered an inclusive community? What must we release? 
So I invite you to take a note And then after you come out of this, let's take a breath together. Let's take a breath in and breathe out. Take another breath in and breathe out. And then let us have you complete the poll if you haven't already participated. So thank you those who have uh, participated. And I'm, I'm going to look at this poll. It's very interesting of who's participating today and your role at Connecticut Children's. And I love your response. The question is, what is one step you can take to promote diversity and inclusivity? 30% of you said to reach out to someone at work from a different race or culture. That touches me. Uh, 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 just a few of you are going to talk to someone in your family. Uh, some of you are going to read a book. And there are some resources that have been provided, a book or watch a film. And I am grateful to see that many of you want to participate in the diversity and inclusivity training program. Thank you so much for participating today. As we go to the next slide. The prescription of what is important to you all right now is to have an environment that fosters inclusion excellence. Not just inclusion, but inclusion at a place of excellence. The two speakers that came before me are evidence of excellence of programs that are being done for gender equality. for women surgeons, inclusion excellence. Number two, apply the skills needed to attract and retain a diverse faculty, staff, all of the operational positions. And number three, to practice the skills needed to increase racial, social, economic, and diversity within your organizations and communities. It's the prescription. It's not just the organization, but 
you are part of the community. Often when I do the visioning, when we do programs together, I ask people to think about who is the community? How broad is the community? Is it just the people that work in the hospital? Is it just the patients that come, the children that come? But your community includes the parents, the siblings. It may include people who just bring the children there because they're there supporting the parent, maybe a grandparent. The community is broader. It also includes the people who are groundskeepers, the people who may be parking the cars. Your community is not just in the building that you're in. And let's go to the next slide. I put this slide here as a way of saying it's possible. It is truly possible that change is coming. These are images of people, some of whom you may know and some of whom you don't, but they are all leaders in healthcare of different backgrounds. They are leaders of health programs like Aetna and other programs. I have the two Surgeon Generals who are people of color, of Asian background. There are people here who are executives of organizations in healthcare, who are physicians, who are leaders of nursing organizations. They're images so that you can see it's possible. And one of the things that I've given you includes um, a little booklet and it has a background on most of these people. But I want you to feel the vision of the possibility, the beauty of diversity and the quality of experience, the quality of energy, the quality that is brought here that will make a difference to everything that you do. We each have such a level of importance in the world. One of the gifts of traveling around the world and, and loving culture is to see, number one, how much we have in common and how many gifts there are to share, regardless of where we grew up, whether we grew up in poverty or in the lap of luxury, we can learn from each other. And as we go to the last slide, we look forward to building an organization that has intentional relationships that bridge across differences, that create a sense of belonging, 
I've been in so many organizations that I was a number, but not included. So you want to develop trust and grow together. And I am delighted that we spent this time together and now we'll have time for questions as we look at the vision of creating a state of belonging, committing to each one. This is what I want you to take away, that everyone is important, that everyone matters. And we only get to a new place when we act as if we belong to each other. And when you are on this journey, you'll know how good it feels to connect to each other. So I open it for questions. Reverend Wilkins, thank yes. you so much for a most inspirational talk and for all the work you do. We are all grateful, so thank you. I do have some questions. Uh, I think it is also important to also acknowledge the long history of medical racism, medical eugenics, forced sterilization, Tuskegee experiment that still persists in medicine today. This is a huge part of why BBIPOC individuals have deep distrust of the medical institution. Could you please comment on this? Uh, I totally agree. Uh, in the uh, little graph that I showed, I actually acknowledge that the history creates the fear. And the history is not just because it's stories, it's because it was real. People died as a result of the experimentation. People did not get the medical support that was needed in many of their lifetimes. So it's important to have that and at the same time recognize that the goal is to get not only beyond it, but to help people who are in a position of being in fear, being distrustful to gain trust. So that's part of what the journey is, to talk to people, to say, what does it take? Because you're not going to be successful as a medical provider if part of your constituency doesn't want to come and see you. So part of the journey of, of doing a program on diversity will include taking that into consideration. So thank you for the question. I know yeah, it came you. from the heart. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and sort of my own question as a segue into that, the whole our COVID pandemic has really taken the covers off and shown many of the economic and healthcare inequities in our society today of those who can stay at home, those who have to go to work, those who have suffered from COVID. And now, as you alluded to there, uh, we are dealing with a lot of hesitancy of COVID vaccines, those of us on the forefront, much of which is based on past history of healthcare that have been delivered. Could you address that and how we can better promote vaccines and uh, improvement of healthcare for all of us? Uh, I, it's a similar answer, except I'll say it a little differently. Uh, one of the things that I do is I, I have worked with an organization called Faith in Action, which does outreach in the community, and they help 
people vote. They help people get to polling places. They help people's uh, work be represented. Um, part of the things that were just done in New Mexico, as an example, uh, the legislation was just in session. And there were four bills that came up. One was for sick leave, paid sick leave, because most people who are essential workers but work uh, in some of the jobs don't have paid sick leave and are going to work because that's the only way to keep money in the household. Thank you. So having the, uh, let, let me complete on this answer. So working with legislation is important, but what I encourage you to do is to work with perhaps uh, organizations that are either faith-based or, or have connections with the community to be a part of that. They will support your journey. They will. And, and I have ways that I can um, be of service in that area. Thank you. Can you speak toward the importance of paying and compensating people of color for their labor in relation to DEI work? I'm not quite sure what that question means, but um, an organization, I'm not sure if it's about an organization or about uh, insight work, but that would be something I might have to talk to someone offline with. Okay, thank you. Wonderful presentation, thank you. As you mentioned early in the discussion, medicine is a white male dominated profession. Minorities continue to be underrepresented in medical school, residency, and fellowship training. In order to increase the diversity of our medical staff, what are the skills we need and the approach we should take to overcome these realities at the present time? Uh, excellent question and a provocative question, really, because it it's at the root of some of the challenges. If you don't see someone that looks like you, you're not sure if that's something you can do. So when people, when young black and Latina and Asian children are coming to Connecticut Children's and they don't see people that look like them, then they're not as, it's not gonna necessarily occur to them that this is something I can do. But I encourage all of you who are in positions of power, in, in positions of authority, and to not only connect with organizations that have women doctors, that not only have nurses, but to work with children's groups. Again, you have to do some outreaching because they're not going to necessarily come to you. Again, thank you so much for taking part in our first inaugural DEI sim symposium, Reverend Wilkins. It is such an honor and pleasure to have you with us today. Just a few closing comments. I want to express some gratitude and thanks to Nicole Capsulis, Elizabeth Anderson, Anna Marie Beaulieu, uh, and Marianne Custer, members of our graduate medical education department and CME department, 
They have been rock stars for all of us, not only in putting this symposium together today, but in bringing us all together as a community of individuals, of practitioners, of people in the healthcare field who were separated as little islands during this pandemic. Mm. And uh, what my colleagues here have done is inspirational to all of us, and we are really grateful to all of you. Thank you again to our amazing speakers, Dr. Polani, Dr. Fink, Reverend Carolyn Wilkins, and thank you all for attending and taking time out of your busy schedules uh, to take part in this vital symposium. A global pandemic, polarizing politics, and movements for racial and social justice have really propelled issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in all aspects of our lives, whether it be our family, our friends, our co-workers, and most important, the leaders who lead us today. So it's really incumbent upon all of us to continue these discussions wherever you are in order that we strive toward a more inclusive and just workplace and society. Thank you all for attending, and I wish you all a safe and healthy weekend. Thank you. Thank you.